Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. On today's episode, Mogan Smed joins us for a second time. Mogan's is the CEO and co-founder of Falkbuilt. He's been dubbed the world's most fireable CEO, but if you listen to his story, you'll learn about his leadership, his loyalty, and his longevity in the business world. He's a remarkable entrepreneur that we can all learn from. Just recently, after a protracted legal battle, a U.S. court dismissed a case against his new company, Falkbuilt, by his former company, Dirt, which is listed on the NASDAQ and TSX. I think it's important to share this as Mogan's resiliency and optimism is something we all need during tough times. The lessons learned from Mogan's experience here, along with his insights on leadership and even the future of construction, are well worth a listen. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can actually speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on a promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. And now, enjoy the show. Mogens, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation here almost a couple of years since we spoke last, a lot's changed. The world is pretty much new as we see it now with all sorts of things that have changed in our work and lab balance. I want to get your take. And I also want to talk, and please allow me as, as much as you will, about what's happening with Dirt and Falk Built and where we are now. Can we start off just for listeners who aren't familiar with you about a bit of your background, and then we'll build on it from there. We came from Denmark in 1952 to Calgary. My mom and my dad and my brother and my sister. And my father was a cabinet maker from Denmark, and he started working in Calgary for a company called KP Nielsen, where the Transalta Utility Building is today. And ultimately, uh, he ended up buying that business, and we started working for him when we were about five years old. And when we look at how this city has been, we get maligned for a lot of things, but at the end of the day, this city has been phenomenal for us. And I'll tell you right now, there is no, in all my travels, there's no better place in the whole world than Alberta. End of story. Secondly is, is that, you know, we started in business here. I actually went to university. Luckily, I was too dumb to be a lawyer. My brother and I started a business. My dad said we were too smart to work for him. We started a business and really doing exactly the same thing as him, except making furniture as well as doing some interior construction. We were a lot smarter than him. Like we said, we had two big customers, Don Petroleum's and Petro Canada. He kept warning us. And 82, when we had the energy crisis, Don went bankrupt and we went bankrupt. And my father died from the stress of the bankruptcy, 14 years younger than I am today. And after two or three months of my brother 
and I'm feeling sorry for ourselves. So, well, what about those 235 people and their families that don't have a job because of our stupidity? You know, and that stands as a lifelong lesson for us and what we've done and the way we run our business. Even today, we have never, ever laid off. And that includes through the pandemic. And in fact, February 1st, 2019, we had six employees. Today, we have over 400. And that's building the business because we believe in what we're doing. We know what we're doing. The only thing you have in your life is your experience, your reputation, and your relationships. And that's basically what we leverage. So after we went broke, we started again. We built a company called Smed International. It went on from 82 until 2000. We sold the company. It got sold back to a company called Hayworth out of Michigan. They bought the company. I lasted all of about a year and a half there. And then I went and worked for a company called Edmonds. And then I started Dirt, which stood for doing it right this time. That company, I was with them for 14 years. We built a pretty darn good business. Last year I was there, we did $360 million and made $56 million and had 1,250 employees. We came to a disagreement. The one thing I will be absolutely vocal about, never bring a Harvard MBA into your business because it basically, and we'll get into that, what happened, but you know, you have to have people that understand your darn business. And, and we came to cross purposes. We realized that it wasn't going to work out. And of course, it's their prerogative. They don't want you there. They don't want you there. So we started on September the 10th, 2018. They fired me. My wife said to ask me what I was going to do. And I said, I'm starting over. She says, I knew it. She said, you're going to risk everything. And I said, it's either that or I'm going to be home 24 hours a day, seven days a week. She said, you better get going. So when we started the business, we called it Timid, which stood for this time, I mean it. First six months, sort of figuring out what we're going to do. The one thing for sure we weren't going to do was copy what we'd done before. We didn't want to be Dirt 2.0, although I still have the dirt plates on my car. It was my idea and my vision, and I was proud of what we accomplished. And to see these people squandering makes me totally grievous in the, as the thing that happened, that's for darn sure. But regardless, we built the business, and uh, the one bit of advice I can give anybody that's starting a business is don't spend one second worrying. Don't worry about whether you're going to run out of money because you are. Don't worry about whether you're going to make mistakes because you're going to make thousands of them. And by the way, just make sure you make them fast. Don't take a long time doing it wrong because you won't get to right. But the key that drives you is if you believe in the vision and you believe in where you're going, you know, you'll get there one way or the other. You certainly can't plan it. How can we plan for a pandemic? That's another big advice. Don't ever start a business in the middle of a pandemic. But that's what yeah. we you know, so at any rate, so here we are today, and it's just we're within weeks of being a profitable business, and we've managed to get through the very hard parts. And I will tell you that the only reason we got through it was because of the team of people that we have that have worked. They say any individual can make mistakes, but for success, you need a team of people. And we have a very strong team of people, very strong supporters out in the marketplace. It's so inspiring. The whole story there, you, you've not many people can say they've built one multi hundred million dollar company, but you've built, I think, three now. I do want to understand for our listeners what happened between Durton and yourself. How did well, you get there? And you say you never to hire a, a Harvard MBA, but something happened there. And pardon me if I'm, I'm coming across wrong there, but there's something that 
I mean, you would have been instrumental in bringing on those people. When you look back at that, where did you perhaps make a mistake? And what do our listeners need to know from that? Because it's cost you, cost you a lot. Yeah. Not that it's, I think, it really bothers you too much because clearly you've gone on to do much better things. But what can we take from that? Well, first of all, when you're raising capital, clearly, if you get a significant financial investor, just like we're, this deal we're doing right now, they're entitled to have a seat on the board. And that's what happened is, is that we had an individual that put a lot of capital in the beginning. Honestly, he was darn good. Very good. But then I sort of let him handpick some other types that were more and aligned with strategic thinkers, smart people, smart people in a lot of ways, but not familiar with our industry and not familiar with the business. We come from a business that's construction. Next to my wife, the most powerful person in the whole world is the building inspector. The most expensive thing in the world next to a divorce is losing a customer. You've got to do whatever it takes to make them happy. And also our ability to give the customer exactly what they want, when they want it, as opposed to what's convenient for the manufacturing. Although you, anybody, idiot can see it, sometimes it costs more to do it that way. That was our philosophy. And quite frankly, loyalty. When we build markets, we had one distribution partner in New York City. We had one in the Middle East. We had one in Charlotte. We had one in San Francisco. That all of a sudden, you know, these people start thinking, gee whiz, if we had more partners, we can get more business. We had 92 partners there. And they, they hired a Boston Consulting. Another really famous Calgarian, his name is Phil Sprung Sr. And Phil Sprung Sr. is the definition of a consultant is an asshole from out of town. So these guys <laughs> came in, you know, these guys came in with in four weeks and they figured out our whole darn business. And they really did it with the guidance of what they want the board wanted to say, and we violently disagreed with it. So we kind of agreed that what we would do is try to sell the business because we had only grown it as far as we felt we could. We wanted to take the business private and sell it. And they wanted to go on the NASDAQ too. And I was the chairman of my old company on the NASDAQ and I'd been there. Small cap companies on the NASDAQ are flailing in the wind and it's proven that to be true today, you know, you're not going to, you have to be growing. We couldn't grow it anymore. Right. And it was really because of the technology that we had. When we started Dirt, there was no such thing as an iPhone or iPad, let alone the cloud, big data, artificial intelligence. That's here today. So no matter what, we were tethered to a desktop type of technology. It was not in alignment with the industry. And the end result was is that we, just, we could see it. And we thought we had a great business that would be a good business. And the board, they basically felt that they could grow the business 20% a year and keep growing it. And we disagreed with it. And I will say, I said, there's no bigger gambler at the table than me. And if I say you can't be done, then it can't be done, right, in that regard. So it's not about taking sides or anything like this, but I did do a bit of quick research, check some charts. And regardless of the pandemic, like there was a there was a big hit that the company took. It looked like a bit of a promote followed by a big hit. And it's been uh, flailing ever since. It's like being married. You've got to make sure that you know that you don't make expectations way beyond what you're able to achieve. Because sooner or later, those disappointments are going to come to hurt you. 
When we left the company, we had 82 million cash in the bank and no debt. Today, they've got all $100 million in debt and they've got 61 million left. And they're losing yeah. about 1.6 million a week. You can't run a business like that. It can't be done. The math doesn't work. It's interesting too to see that as the, the founder and operator, co-founder and operator of Dirt, where you had such a finger on the, the pulse of the company and the relationships and the, and the people. Whereas when you get somebody who comes at it academically from the outside and says, well, if we do this, this, and this, we're going to achieve X. And you almost go from the subjective to the objective. And in theory, things don't always work out or like the, the theories don't always work out. And it sounds like there was that mistake of perhaps the board members pursuing a very academic argument without putting any regard to the, to the subjective nature of what is the construction business or any business. Well, I'm adamant, uh, and we have an MBA school here in Calgary too. Where in the MBA school do they teach about building a culture and a business? Where in an MBA school do they teach you about empathy? Where in an MBA school do they teach you about the value of building relationships? You know, those are the things that are fundamental in the soul of any business, at least till it gets to be a billion dollars. I'm going fishing with a client from San Francisco tomorrow. These are relationships that I've had forever, and, and you build on those relationships. The more important relationships are with the people that you work with. We walk out and go up sitting in the factory there, and if I'm in town, you bet I'm out there hanging around with the people. We've never laid off in our whole life. We never will. My father never did. So we gain their trust. We may be a little direct in our communication, but they trust you because we're not hiding from them. I sit at an Ikea table in the middle of the whole thing here, right? So very transparent about who we are and how we operate. But there's nothing more important than a culture in the business. Nothing more important because, and if they trust you, they'll do whatever they can to help you succeed. I want to talk about the future of work and what you're seeing there, because obviously that whole, ever since the pandemic's come along, it's yeah. changed how we do everything. But before that, I want to continue on and talk a bit about the about your leadership style, because there's no doubt when, when I speak to people who know you, who have heard about you, who have worked with and for you, you're a remarkable leader, Vogens. And so I'm very curious about how you'd characterize your, your leadership style. I happen to believe that you could be friends with the people you work with. For me, the most encouraging thing is when somebody, whatever that role in the company is, when they come with an idea and it can help us, right? That tells you that they trust us. They're not afraid to speak their opinion in that. My style is really, really a lot like my father's was, is that I'm not easy to work for, that's for darn sure. And I am very demanding. There's no question about it. But I've never worked a day in my life. I like what I do. I love what I do. With the people, too, if they see that you have the confidence or the belief, no matter how tough it gets, they'll support you. That's just the way it is. One thing you have to learn, just like with your family and your friends, you have to be humble. Leadership, it's not bequeathed. You have to earn it. And you have to earn it every single day. And you're not always going to be right. That's for darn sure. And they'll forgive you being wrong. If they trust you, if they start seeing that your behaviors change and you get a little bit too big for your britches. You know, there's a great story about this Harvey Pennick. He's a coach. He was going with a golf coach and he was going with his wife to an event one night. And he says to his wife, there's going to be all kinds of important people here tonight, darling. 
And she says to him, one less than you think. And that's the kind of thing that if the people, they can't feel comfortable with you or they feel that you're something superior or better to them, that doesn't work. Because first of all, I don't feel that way. I'm very proud of the demographic of this company. We have 52 different nationalities here. I'm adamant, and the men don't like to hear this, but the women that work for us are our very best in what they do. And even in the organization, we've struggled in the organization, the demographic of it, we don't care what color your skin is. We don't care what religion you are. We do care about your politics, but that's not what we're going to discuss. We don't bring it up. You can imagine when we're doing work in the Middle East and we just finished a job in India for Morgan Stanley. You can imagine you just keep your mouth shut about what the religious implications are, et cetera, et cetera. I always call ourselves from a business point of view, we're right wing, but from a social point of view, we're socialists, right? Yeah. Socially liberal and, and fiscally conservative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, fiscally conservative isn't the word that would come to mind for me, that's for sure. Right? All right. Yeah, yeah. With this and with your years and experience and companies you've built. Would you say your leadership's changed or like there's been lessons learned? Or do you look back at yourself when in your younger years and go, oh, my God, I wish I knew what I do do now? Absolutely. First of all, there's a bunch of things that have gone wrong here. When you think about it, this whole attitude, we come from a very tactile business, architects, designers. We hug each other, right? We do that. But now you have to be careful how you do that, right? It, those are the type of things. I still have people that work with me for 30 years that we hug each other, but if they're new, you've got to change your behaviors. Maybe my sense of humor is a little lighter than it used to be. Certainly, I've learned to control my temper. I used to have a really bad temper. Now I just have a bad temper, but I'm not going to waste <laughs> it. Okay. You know, those are things, you know, you don't want to lose control in front of the people and all that, because if they see you panicking, they're going to panic. What about loyalty and building that loyalty? Because it seems like you've been able to do this. And has there ever been times when you've gone down that path in your style of building loyalty where people have taken advantage of it or where where perhaps it's gone a little too far? Of course, my wife says the M on my forehead stands for Mark, not Mogan's. Loyalty is a two-way street. If someone's loyal to you, you better be loyal to them. And we have many friends, some back to our university days. You have to reciprocate that loyalty. There's going to be times when they want to jump off that bridge and you ain't going to like it, but you got to go with them. Contrary, I'll tell you, it's funny you asked that question because the chairman of DIRT felt that my loyalty to people, my loyalty to the way that we did things, he says, clouded my business judgment. Maybe it has, but on the long term, I'd like to be identified or recognized as the fact that, that loyalty is everything for me. It, and that's in my family, in my friends, in my work, in my business relationships. It's the most important thing. It just is. You know, there's eight of us that went to University of Alberta together 60 years ago. We decided that before too much dementia gets in there or not, that we were going to write our eulogy so that we could have something that we could read. They could read when we died or whatever. Yeah. We, we wanted to write down what the top eight attributes of your life or what you aspire to. And it's funny, of the eight of us, six use loyalty, number one. Wow. The other two were sense of humor. Equally as important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for myself personally, and for, I'm sure, a lot of our listeners, it's, 
I feel I've made a lot of bad judgments when it comes to, to trying to build loyalty among those who I'm working with. And it's bit me in the ass. And I look back and go, why did I do that? I shouldn't do that. Yeah. But I think that that would be a mistake not to continue down that path, because to your point, it's not about the short term, it's about the long term. And those wow. that you start to build around you and, and surround yourself with for the long term, that can go the extra mile. It's too easy to justify things in the name of business. The point is that when it comes to loyalty, it has to be ever encompassing. If they saw me betraying somebody, whether it's a friend or in business or not being loyal, they would say, well, if you'll do that with that person, probably do it with me. And I do suffer for it. You bet. Uh, there's lots of people over the years where, where I've been burned, but you know, you still got to forgive them because they may not understand the situation. And, and that's another thing I don't believe in. I don't believe in revenge. We move on no matter what. Obviously, we've clobbered these guys on this lawsuit, no matter how much it's cost Congrats us. Congrats to that. You know, yeah, but we have no intention of going back at them and trying to make a bunch of money off that. That's carrying forward a negative thought. All we want to do is move ahead in a positive way. You know, to bring it back to the lawsuit, I was, and that's why I actually reached out to you a few days back was your post saying that effectively the U.S. court has dropped a case and found no liability and good on you for continuing to fight the fight there. Well, but you know what? And I'll say it, and I have lots of lawyers that are friends. There can't be a more destructive force to creativity, to entrepreneurship than the legal process. These people, these lawyers, they understand the law. Obviously, we've got lots of legal opinions of what it is. And the fact that they're allowed to just run the clock for nothing more than a personal vendetta or to hurt somebody, you've got to ask yourself about their moral compass. And to see big firms in Calgary coming after us, after we've got a solid reputation in this city forever, and they know we would never do anything dishonest. I've got to say, it's an indictment on the profession. Thank God we're not just a young couple with a great idea. They could have wiped them out, you know, and think about yeah. probably the hundreds of times that that happens. Oh, thousands. Yeah. Endless. I really do understand what you're saying when, you know, you've got a lawyer trying to make his 2,000 or 2,200 hours or whatever it is. Perhaps well, the system's not the best, but let's not rag on them too much. Oh, no, I, I will forever if you want me to. That's a, and that, includes, <laughs> that includes my friends. My dear friends are lawyers, you know, but they're still my friends, right? I actually joke around that I have an unusual number of friends as lawyers, perhaps a disproportionate amount, but yeah. I do enjoy the conversations with them. I really like how their minds work. Perhaps I don't love the profession they're in, but I do like how their minds work. It's pretty interesting. They don't, they don't like their own profession. My friends, they, they said there's days that they go home, they can't look at their children because they're ashamed of what they've done that day. They don't try to justify it. They know it's the truth. Well, I don't want to get too worked up on that. Let's uh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Let's let's talk about the future of work because you've got a really interesting perspective on it. And I mean, what can you say to, to the fact that you came out of the gates with Falkbilt? You started with, I think, six of you, and then it wasn't too long after a pandemic just wipes out what is the office work environment. And yeah. so I think you have a really interesting perspective on how you're your clients well, and customers are adapting. And where are we going to go with this? What is this going to look like? Well, technology is a savior. 
Look at you. You moved to Vernon because that's probably lifestyle and all that. And you can still do everything that you're doing. It doesn't replace face to face. That's for darn sure. However, yeah, very true. but it's darn well efficient, even in the city, trying to get six people together to make a darn decision. Right. So we basically took technology and we adapted to that technology. We've done over 600 Zoom calls. You can see there was clients walking behind us that are in the factory from San Francisco today and all that. But so technology is a savior. But also think about it. Women, I'm I'm so proud of the women that work for us. They've got kids and they're able to do a job as well or better than anybody. Lots of times we're doing Zoom calls and they got their two kids sitting on their lap or they got the dog running around and all that. And, you know, clearly that's the game changer here is how technology can work how we can accommodate our lifestyles and we should always accommodate family lifestyle. We've always worked here in, in our factories, four days on four days off. So that means you get four days off every four days. So you can easily go out to the Okanagan for the weekend and have a nice weekend together and you still get your full work week. So, and the work style itself, it's silly. You shouldn't have to come into a building every single darn day. If you've got your laptop or whatever you're doing that there's certain things if you're making stuff, you got to be here. If we're being in the creative side of things, that's for darn sure. We got to be here in that regard. But at the end of the day, big companies like Google and Chase Bank and all that, and they are struggling to make sure that they create an environment that someone actually wants to come there. But you can't force them to tell them they got to come to work five days a week. That's what we're seeing. Unbelievably different work styles everywhere, everywhere. I really do believe that, what we're going to get out of this is we're going to move back to a hybrid work environment where you don't have to be there every single day. And I think it's going to be interesting and unique for each kind of role that people play within organizations. But I think that we'll find an equilibrium in being in-person and and not. But I really do think that the companies that are going to succeed are going to be the ones who either foster a culture that brings people together and into a physical environment or for you know, those who have to do it, they force or mandate it. And, you know, of course, that's uh, not the company that I want to be a part of. But I think that the teams who come together and, and have that face to face are the ones who are going to succeed. And I think to your point, there is building environments now that draw people in. So they say, I want to be there. I enjoy being there yeah. more than being in my home office. That's going to be kind of the winning formula going forward. No question. These people from San Francisco come in there. They feel the energy in this place. And the energy is there. They see that the people are happy. They see the, how clean this place is. They see how organized we are. But they see a whole culture and they see the people in there. That's what makes a business. That's part of your culture. You can't create a culture virtually. It just can't happen. Yeah. You have to have that synergy together in, in what you're doing. But it doesn't mean you have to be there together five days a week, 10 hours a day. That's absolutely for sure. One other thing, I'm going to make this clear now. It's been something that I've been working on in the background is as a team for our company, I'll be a small company. We're going to be moving to four-day work weeks as well. You know, we're going to have to trial it out. We're going to figure out what's going to work for us. There's going to be times where we'll have to be in, but I'm, I figure after you mentioning the four-on, four-off there for your team, I might as well make this public as well because I think it's it's a force for good. Well, for us, we were talking about utilizing the resource. We got 92,000 square feet here. We manufacture and ship 84 hours a week versus 40. You know, so right. you think about it, it makes business sense. It's good for work style. By the way, there's people because of family reasons can only, they, we give them the five day work week. 
we've always done that. We're very flexible that way. Mm, Amazing. Yeah. By the way, I will tell you as an aside for a blog, you want to talk to Dennis O'Rourke. Okay. About his winery. You really do. He's mad at his money, you know, because he's spending all this money on a winery. May not even finish it in his lifetime, the way he changes his mind. But I think you'd find it very enjoyable and get him to take you up in the tunnels. And he's drilled all kinds of holes in the mountain there and all that. And you'd read there's a heck of a story there. Heck of a story. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, uh, now I've got good reason to put her on down there and go and say hi in person. Dennis is a dirt mover. He's from Shoreway Construction in Edmonton and into digs ditches. And now he's coming into this creative world and he's loving it, by the way. Pretty darn powerful there. Very powerful. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Any other final comments? I mean, from the trials and tribulations you've had with your former focus or on your leadership or on the future of work, anything you'd like to leave us with? I think that you always have to take the high road. You know, you have not seen us in the newspapers or in the press or social media, regardless, I always feel those people that are in the media saying that they're innocent, it's because they're guilty. And it's not easy after four years of sitting there and not responding to them, but that's, it's important in life, you know, don't making excuses, you know, in front of your people or your family, it's not the right way to go. And you live with your decisions and it's always long-term gain on the left. If you're, if you're in the right, whatever it is, you'll be proven out. It might be uncomfortable for a while, but you have to stay the course. That's the way it is. I just want to end on that point of looking at much more long-term. I think it's it's amazing to me at how short-term we've all become and lost sight of what things can happen when they start to be measured in years. We seem to be in quarters and into minutes and into seconds now. And it just, we lose course very easy that way. So I think that's a great final point. Thank you. Things are happening a lot faster. I'm 74 right now. Hopefully I can last till I'm 80 before I get fired again. And then I got to start again. So, you know, I'm running out of time, you know, the way that it works. But at the end of the day, you know, we're coming into a whole different era now. We call it coming from the metaverse to reality. And that's what's really happening real time right now. And Mm. uh, I think that, you know, especially the young people, they're going to reap the benefits of it. They really are. Yeah, very interesting. Mogens, as uh, the world's most fireable CEO, thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. And Jennifer, thanks for helping set this up. Thank you, Corey. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.